Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. It's nearly all over. In fact, when you're listening to this podcast, it might be all over already. Yes, the 2018 Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang. The greatest winter sports stars on the planet all competing for gold medals. And I've got a former Winter Olympic champion on the podcast this week. It's another speed skater. Casey Fitz Randolph is on the program. You might remember him from the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City where he won the 500 metres in speed skating, breaking the Olympic record in the process. And the American speaks to me on this week's Best in the World with Richard Parr. And we talk about what he's up to now. I won't give away what his job is. In fact, you'll already know if you've read the show notes. But if you haven't read the show notes, I'm not going to tell you now anyway. But Casey makes the comparison to his job that he does now to what his life was like as a sports star and what he's learned from speed skating that he can use in his current career. One of the particular things that we discuss is risk and reward. That's a a topic we've covered a few times with various sports stars, but Casey gives a really unique perspective on that in this podcast. He talks about what he did differently between the 1998 games in Nagano to what he did to become the champion in 2002. He talks about his time working with the Canadian speed skaters. He, of course, is from Wisconsin. He is an American, but after those 1998 games, he decided to go and train with Canada. He explains why and also the benefits he got from it on this podcast, talking to me on The Best in the World with Richard Barr. Before we do that, I want to say about Audible. Audible is one of the leading suppliers of audiobooks in the world. They've got over 180,000 titles for you to choose from. I've recently been listening to a book called 8020 in Sales and Marketing by Perry Marshall. It's a really interesting book. It's not very long. It's about five, six hours. I listen on 1.5 times speed. And it gives you lots to think about of using the 80-20 percentage, uh, the Pareto law, I believe it's called, where... 20% of everything you do ends up accounting to 80% of the results and it's really made me think about a few different things. So it's a book I would recommend you to have a listen to as it doesn't take too long, five hours and then at 1.5 times speed that's about three hours and I think it's really worth it and you can listen to it for free. All you've got to do is go to audibletrial.com forward slash best that will give you a free 30-day trial of audible service and that includes one free audiobook download and it could be 8020 in sales and marketing by perry marshall go and check it out let me know what you think of it as well send me a tweet at richard underscore par or we can talk a little bit more about it at the best in the world facebook group i'll put a link to that on the show notes page as well but yes if you want to learn from the very best if you want to get increased knowledge using audiobooks go check out audible go get a 30-day free trial audibletrial.com forward slash best All right, let's learn on this podcast from the Olympic speed skating gold medalist, 
Casey Fitzrandolph. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Casey Fitzrandolph, welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr. Of course, one of the most impressive accolades of your career was becoming Olympic champion back in 2002. Obviously, that's a, a while ago now. So let's begin, Casey, with what are you up to at the moment? Well, I now have, well, let, first let me say thank you, Richard, for having me on. I appreciate it. I've enjoyed um, I've enjoyed looking up some of your past interviews and... Um, and quite frankly, um, getting inside the head of people that have become the best in the world at what they do is is um, is something of real interest to me. You know, people um, all function a little bit differently, and yet there are uh, some similarities there as well. And so I'm always curious about the mental side of sport and uh, and people that have had success in sport. So happy and honored to be a part of it. Um, in terms of my life after skating, it's, uh, well, in one word, uh, normal. Um, I have a blessed life, and um, that means I have a wife with two children. Our kids are uh, have just turned 11 and 9. We've got a son, Sawyer, and a daughter, Cassidy, and we live in um, a small town outside a mid-sized city uh, here in the state of Wisconsin, and... Um, um, I have a job in business insurance, so stay seated. I know that's exciting, <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's a little bit about what we're up to. We have a couple of farms, um, and, um, that we get away to. And, uh, and right now I'm spending a lot of time chasing our kids around and, and carting them around to their sporting activities when I'm not at the office. Fantastic. Well, thank you for your nice words about the podcast. It It is interesting what you say about how there's some similarities and differences, because when I speak to different guests, part of me is expecting an answer sometimes that I've heard before, and then they give me something completely different. Um, <laughs> a few things to pick up there, Casey, and, and I want to talk about uh, your job at the moment, working in insurance. And, and when I did my research, uh I heard you talk about it before, and and you said one of your roles was helping small to mid-sized companies manage their risk. And that really intrigued me, because one of those common themes that I've found with different sports stars is a few of the really highly talented innovators of the sport almost try a high-risk, high-reward. Firstly, is that something that you tried as an athlete? And if so... How does that work with you trying to sell insurance? <laughs> I'm utterly confused. <laughs> no. Um, well, you know, it, it's interesting. I I consider um, um, the sport of speed skating to be a, a lesson in managing risk. Quite frankly, we're going 40 miles miles an hour, whatever that is in kilometers, and um, and we're doing that on a blade that's, you know, uh, what, two millimeters in width. Um, and so while you're trying your hardest, you also need to be co- cognizant or aware of, um, aware of how much you're leaning, uh, how sharp your blades are, when you can apply pressure into the ice to generate speed versus not. Because ultimately, if we don't stay on our feet or on our skates, then we, we surely don't win. So... Um, you know, another thing that I do, um, since retire, since retiring from skating is, is a fair amount of, um, uh, public and motivational speaking. And one of the ties that I make between speed skating and, uh, risk management for businesses is just that risk management and managing risk and how you do it. So, um, yes, you have to take a lot of risks, um, to become, uh, boarding champion, quite frankly, you have to take risk to be successful at any endeavor in life. Um, but I think there's something to be said for, um, um, for smart, um, and educated risks. And that was the case in training as well. You know, it was not always about, um, more hours and more hours and more hours of training. It was a combination of a high volume, but also knowing when to back off and knowing when you needed rest and sleep and the right food. So 
everything in life is calculated if we're if we're vested in trying to be the best that we can be. Mm, um, uh, talking about working smarter more necessarily than harder. What else do you think that you've been able to take from your career uh, as a speed skater, as a, an elite athlete that you have been able to to use in your day-to-day life, in in your in your office life so to speak? Yeah. Well, um there's a lot to be said for hard work and if I'm being honest, um, I thought when I got done skating that given the platform it provided for me and the name recognition, uh, that I, that I would not have to work as hard, um, to make a, a good living moving forward. And, um, and it took me a few years to come to grips with the fact that I was wrong. <laughs> uh, when we start over in life with a new career, um, we have to work really hard to be successful, just like we did the first time. So in many ways, it's different, of course, from being a professional athlete. But um, you need to work hard, um, regardless of whether people like your name or want to be want to be with you socially. If somebody's going to trust you in a professional career long term, um, then you need to do things that allow them to trust you. And typically, that means working harder than most other people and being persistent mm. was you know if sorry richard I, I will say that having been said if i may mm. um i got into sales because i thought well this will be like sports i can control my own destiny i have flexible hours flexible income i can you know work when i want to work and take off when i want to take off um and um it was not nearly as parallel as I expected in the, in the real world, as I'll call it, the world of sales and business. Um, there are a lot of things outside your control, right? As a speed skater, the clock doesn't lie. The fastest man wins and you have, you have a very high level of control over your results. Um, in the working world, we're dealing with people and all of us people can be irrational at times. And, um, and so, uh, it's not nearly as black and white as skating in circles. Was the plan always to, to work in insurance or in some kind of sales or did, did you have a plan for when you would retire from sport? No, I thought about a lot of things. And when I retired, I came back home here to the Madison, Wisconsin area. And I probably looked into a dozen different career choices and I narrowed it down to two. One was one was insurance and risk management sales, and the other was what we call a community affairs or a public relations position for um, the large hospital and healthcare system associated with our university here in town. And so, um, the community affairs position would have been a fun job. Um, I would have been finding ways to spend their money and where do we do promotional advertising and it would have been involved TV and things. Um, but an insurance, maybe not so sexy, but um, I wanted the flexibility uh, that came with, you know, the sales role. So I wanted to be able to control my time and how it was spent and also my income. Mm. Obviously, as a sports star, uh, a lot of athletes are reliant on sponsorship and gaining their own sponsors. Is that something you had to do as a speed skater? And was there anything, uh, if that was true, was there anything that you learned doing that that you were able to bring into this job that you're doing now? Uh, and vice versa, is there anything in, in that that you wish you'd know to help you get sponsorship as an athlete? Well, you know, speed skating in America... Um, is not the equivalent of football or baseball or basketball or car racing, right? So um, we had to be a little bit creative. At first, um, I thought we could approach it like the Dutch do maybe in um, offering you know, a company logo on my uniform in exchange for money. But companies in America, if we're being honest, they really don't care about that. We don't get enough TV time. So we needed to find other ways to create value. And typically that meant we were offering a certain number of speaking engagements 
either to their general workforce or their sales staff or to their you know important clients or to their executive team or to their charity of choice and so you know we needed to find a way again to create value and offer these companies you know a motivation or a motivating reason to give Casey Fitzrandolph Olympic speed skater money to help me you know train and live and so that's how we did it we did it outside of just you know, their logo on the uniform. Mm -hmm. And um, um, in terms of, you know, learning, um, learning and uh, learning from that, uh, you know, it stuck with me certainly because um, we need to create value for those around us. If we're just thinking, thinking primarily about, you know, what is best for us and how can I get more? That's not a good long-term solution, right? We need to figure out what other people want from us and how we can give them that. And then from there, we need to back into, you know, a, a fair and reasonable price or deal. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. More from Casey in just a moment. This is obviously episode 105 of The Best in the World with Richard Pass. So that means I've spoken to over 100 world and Olympic champions on this podcast. And I've picked up a few tricks and tools along the way on getting these high-profile interview guests. And I've put seven of the best tips and tools for getting high-profile interview guests into an article and you can get that article. I put a link to it on the show notes page. You can get it there and you can read those seven tips and tools to get high profile interview guests. So you can improve your podcast, your YouTube channel, your blog. It can help you connect with the people that you are interested in speaking to, not just sports stars. If you're into pop culture, if you're into psychology, if you're into other types of science. This will give you tools that you can use to speak to the real leaders in your field. So go and check it out. Seven tips and tools to get high profile interview guests. I'll put a link to it on this show notes page. All right, let's return to the conversation with Casey Fitzrandolph. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. mentioned your children do you have two budding young speed skaters on your hands <laughs> no i'd like to tell you yes but our kids our son is into soccer and our daughter is into a number of sports still pretty young but primarily cheer so i don't know mm. if cheer is a big sport overseas in england or across europe do you guys have a lot of not really in the, in the UK. Yeah. A, a few of okay. the, the, the football uh, clubs here do, but they're they're nowhere near yeah. as athletic. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Well, it's become a really big deal here in America, and a lot of young ladies do it. Um, and so, you know, they're doing uh, gymnastics, and you know, on the on the stage, and then they're doing these pyramids, and you know, getting people up high and throwing them around. And so she's into that. And our our son. And his, you know, well, we would say soccer, you would say football. Mm. He is, um, he is um, a lot of fun. <laughs> He's a, you know, we're, we all uh, love our children. And, um, but he's wired in a way that he wants to be, um, he wants more, more, more. He wants to be the best. He wants, you know, a bigger challenge every night. He wants to play with the older kids and practice with the older kids and so we just, you know, we just went to um, a regional tournament this past weekend, seven hours away, and, you know, he comes back even more fired up. So right now, quite frankly, um, I'm, you know, my favorite thing in life is driving him around to his, to his football practices and, um, and games. Superb. It's just a shame for him that he won't be able to see the United States at the World Cup later this year. Um, <laughs> that, that wasn't meant as a dig, but... Um, it could be meant as a dig. <laughs> but, uh, we were pretty I disappointed. You, I hear you were a pretty decent soccer player, Casey. Well, I did some, yes. 
but you know, it's amazing how much the sport has evolved and developed here in America. Um, you know, they're learning, they're learning concepts and footwork and ball skills at age, you know, 10 that we were learning at age 16. And, um, and so it's really, it's really cool to see. And it's also baffling that we're not any better on an international level because we do have a lot of kids playing, playing soccer here in America. So, um, I played it for four years in high school and, um, and played some club. Um, and then, uh, and then had to focus on, and I kicked for uh, American football team as well in high school and college a little bit. And then I had to choose one sport and that became speed skating. Mm. And one of the reasons I asked whether your children were speed skaters is because I wanted to know if they were, whether you would motivate them with money like you, your father did to you and your brother. Uh, I, I hear that you were um, motivated with, uh, I believe a dollar bill, on to who would ever win. Is this true? <laughs> well, so it was me and my sister, and she was ah. a couple of years younger. Um, but you're right, I did have a sibling that skated, and, and she was very good. Um, uh, my uh, my folks, tr- you know, tried to motivate us any way they could, and sometimes that meant um, a dollar bill. Sometimes that meant, um, uh, you know, chips to go along with our sandwich. Uh, there were a lot of different motivators that they used. Um, you know how it is with a family that's, um, that has kids who are very involved in sports. Um, it becomes a lifestyle and it becomes important, you know, not just to the kids, but to mom and dad as, as well. So, um, um, that can be a, that can be a, uh, I would use the word precarious, uh, line to draw on the sand, you know, um, (coughs) from mom and dad's perspective, on one hand, you, want to provide every opportunity you can. And as a result, you spend a lot of time and money on your children. And on the other hand, um, it needs to ultimately come from them, not from, you know, not from mom and dad, if they're going to be their best. Mm. And when did that happen for you? When, when did that kind of momentum shift from, you know, the, the, the motivation uh, from your parents to your sole motivation and almost your, your sole goal? Yeah, well, you know that that was that's that was a very interesting part of of my skating career. I got into speed skating when I was four, just about to turn five, so very young, and I'd already been playing hockey and ice skating for a couple of two three years before that. But I got into it at an early age, and um, and I I always had success here in America, um, but. It became, it became stressful. It became um, more about um, trying to make mom and dad, or in particular dad, happy um, and live up to his expectations than about doing it because I really enjoyed doing it and wanted to be the best. And um, I remember, Richard, a conversation that I had with my dad at their house out in the yard I was 24 years old. I had already skated in the 1998 Olympics in Nagano, Japan, and I was home for a break from training, and I said, Dad, I know how badly you want me to win at the world level, but you can't make it happen. It needs to come from within me. So I need you to back off. I know that you're vested in this. I know how much you care. But you've got to internalize that or talk to mom about it or somebody other than me because it's not helping. And uh, it was a hard conversation to have. um, But to his credit, he did back off. And it was at that same time that I moved up to Calgary, Alberta, and um and probably um, attain some more independence because of being, <laughs> you know, tw- 25 hours away, um, and uh, uh, and and my skating uh, improved as a result. Mm, yeah, you you stopped training with the American team and and started training with the Canadians. Beyond what you just mentioned there with your father, what what were the other motivations and, and what were the improvements that you you had there? 
Yeah, well, so in 98, we were dealing with um, the introduction of the clap skate, right, which was revolutionary in the sport of speed skating. And um, and uh, they were difficult they were difficult to acquire, even if you were willing to pay for them. Um, the Viking um, factory in Japan and in, in uh, the Netherlands, long known as kind of the place to get speed skates, um, had made um, the best. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Lapskate design, and they wouldn't sell them to me. Um, Why? I tried to get them, well, because I was one of their toughest competitors. Mm. And... uh, we tried. Uh, they would sell them to other Americans, um, but they knew the size of my foot and they knew the length of blade that I wanted. And so they would always tell us we're out of that size. We're on summer vacation. There was always an excuse. And so it was, uh, um, I eventually had a pair of clap skates made by an American company and, and, you know, skated in the Olympics in 98. But, um, in my opinion, it was not a very fair Olympics, and it was very frustrating for me and um, and for a few of the other top skaters from the year before who were not able to get the same technology in time in far enough you know far enough in advance of that Olympics. Uh, so that was that was an interesting games for us. But the other thing, you know, in addition to to um, admittedly feeling sorry for myself for a little while. The other thing that I had to do was um, figure out what I was going to do to never allow that to happen again. And when I looked at the 500-meter results from Nagano, um, I was sixth. There was a Japanese guy, Hiryasu Shimizu, that won in his home country. And numbers two, three, four, and 5 were all out of Canada, which meant every one of the four guys that they entered beat me. And when I saw that, I said, well, obviously they know something about how to skate on this new clap skate. So that's when I reached out to them and asked if I could come up and join them. So uh, they taught me um, some things about the clap skate, but, and I didn't know this going up there when I, when I started. More importantly, um, they taught me a lot about the importance of great teammates who were both very good skaters, but also... Um, very good people, very unselfish, and guys that were willing to share their mentality and their thought surrounding every component of the race from a mental perspective. So that's why um, I went on to have the success that I did while training with Jeremy Witherspoon and Mike Ireland up in Canada. Mm. Up to that point, had you only ever seen this as an individual sport? Had you only ever seen it as just you? Yeah, I had. And, you know, that's not to say that um, I didn't have close friends or good teammates here in America. Um, 
But from a results perspective, I came onto the scene right after Dan Jansen retired, and so I did not have the luxury of training with him. And, you know, the Americans were not as strong at that point. So to be able to move up there and train with the best, some of the best in the world, um, and then have them share, like I said, the secrets, you know, their mental outlook towards everything, um, uh, the way they did, uh, is what propelled me. So it was a, it was a special moment, um, in, in speed skating, even in Canada, in Calgary, they don't, I don't think they, they operate the same way anymore, but they did let me in and let me let me train in their system with, you know, their coaches, with their massage therapists and physical therapists and, and do all the testing that they were doing. So mm. I was a lucky man. <laughs> and you then go to the, the, the 2002 Olympics, obviously on home soil, well, American soil as you were living in Canada, but what did you learn other than what you've learned say with the the canadian team and and the skates and teamwork and everything like that what was there which helped you prepare perhaps better for these games what did you learn from nagano that was able to help you in 2002 mm-hmm. was there anything else well, yeah in addition to you know the canadians and the clapscape um another major takeaway from japan was you know i had watched I had watched one of my idols, Dan Jansen, go to the Olympics as the best in the world and fall and fall and, you know, and, and, and fail, right? Fail and fail and fail until he ultimately won the 1000 in, in Hamar, Little Hamar, Norway. And, and I saw him struggle, um, at the Olympics time after time. And I told myself, Casey, when you get there to your first Olympics, you need to make it a positive experience in your own head so that the next one will be positive as well. And so I went to Nagano. I got sixth in the 500, seventh in the 1,000, which were results that were not good compared to um, the year before, prior to clap skates, when I had been on the podium many times. And yet I had to tell myself, Casey, considering how late you got on these new skates, um, you did very well in Japan, and should consider that a positive experience and and part and that was it was true but it was also a a sell job on myself i needed to convince myself that that was the case so that when i got there four years later in salt lake city i could look back at my other my only other olympic experience and consider it a very positive one and use all the energy surrounding the olympic games to my advantage versus my disadvantage Mm. Was that easy to do? Because, uh, you know, I've spoken to a lot of um, winter Olympians and Olympians who have, they've got over their failure and had success, but a lot of them have that, that first month, two months, sometimes three months of, well, in some cases, depression, but a feeling really low, really disappointed, really difficult, uh, their outlook on life were you able to almost instantly do that going, I'm going to learn from this experience? Did you have any low moments at all? Uh, yes, it's a very good question. So, you know, I started telling myself that it was a positive experience as it was happening, um, but I struggled. I struggled. I would tell you, Richard, I struggled for a year after. Um, and it wasn't that I um, didn't believe I could come back um, or be among the best again. But um, but I struggled, I struggled with not having accomplished my dream. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, I'd been skating for eighteen, nineteen years, and and I had always been focused on you know a gold medal, or going to the Olympics and winning gold medals. And um, and given how I'd skated in '97, that was my that remained my dream and I, and I felt the realistic one. So when it did not happen, it was, it was very, it was difficult for a year. Like I said, I had a pity party. I felt sorry for myself, but then, you know, you kind of, sometimes we learn more from our failures or setbacks than we do from our successes. And, and I had to, I had to make a, a decision at that point as to whether I was going to, as we say, sail off into the sunset and be done 
and say coulda, shoulda, woulda, um, or or I needed to rally myself mentally and figure out how I could put every variable that I could in my favor. Were you a man who had any superstitions or any rituals throughout your career? Is there anything you did in particular in your pre-race routine, and did it change at all? Well, I liked to have my cornflakes for breakfast, <laughs> um, and I had a very specific routine um, leading into you know the day of my races, leading into the races. Um, if we had um, this, did not happen at the Olympics. Um, but at a World Cup or a World Championships, we would race the 500 meter and the 1,000 meter on the same day, and so you'd get a little bit of rest in between the two, maybe two hours. Um, I would have half of a Snickers bar 43 minutes prior to racing my 1,000 meters, after having raced the 500. What would happen if it would be 42 or 41? <laughs> yeah, good question. I don't know. I'm sure it was often, and I yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But that was my, you know, that was my, I tried to figure out what worked, right? And um, and so I got pretty specific with it. Uh, you know, that having been said, um, um, I, I had actually my locker number was uh, 13 the year of 2002. And I remember telling myself, you know, it's lucky 13, Casey, not unlucky 13. Is there is there superstition surrounding the number 13 over there, Richard? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's yeah. the same as you guys, I think. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, I had I had to convince myself that it was lucky. Um, uh, but, I, you know, the other thing I remember spending a lot of time on going into 2002 and, and a huge con- contributor to my success was um, the mental side. And part of that surrounded... Um, coping with the stress at the that were that were you know that was to come at the Olympic Games and and you know my entire at that time 23 year career had been about going to the Olympics and winning a gold medal right it's all about a gold medal a gold medal a gold medal one object and that's how I'm going to define myself and my career and then as I got close meaning the year of I realized you can't look at it that way, Casey. If you judge your career and yourself and your character on an object, on one gold medal, you are setting yourself up to fail. And so, ironically, for 23 years, I, it, I prepared for a gold medal. And then for about 12 months prior, I had to make it not about the gold medal. And so we spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time thinking about um, what if I succeed at the Olympics? And also, what if I fail? And the only way that I could get comfortable with those scenarios was first to face the what if I fail question. And when I looked hard and long at that scenario, I came to the conclusion that it would indeed be a, be a major bummer, a major disappointment. And yet the sun would come up the next morning. My mom would still love me and dad, my fiance, you know, my health would still be there. And it helped me put things in perspective. And once I determined that failing would be okay in the big picture, only then could I turn my attention to the what if I succeed and prepare to succeed. Because I'm a huge believer that when we go into the most important moments of our life, we all have those butterflies in the stomach, right? We all have those feelings, but we go one of two directions with them. We either go towards a fear of failure. Oh no, what if this goes wrong? I'm nervous. What if I forget this? What if I don't perform? Um, or we go to a, an excitement to, to succeed. Hey, this could go really well, and if this goes really well, it's going to be awesome, and here are all the reasons why. Um, we've got to deal with the former so that we can then prepare for the latter, that success. And, and, and so that's what I focused on going into Salt Lake City. 
And I think that what, what if I fail is is something really useful that that we all can do whenever we think of something difficult or something hard and or something we kind of get nervous about. We have to kind of think, well, what, what's the worst thing that can happen? Um, so I think I think that's something really really good to that we all can use from you there, Casey. Um, when you when you were thinking about that, um, when you were had in your mind that okay. I can't be defined by the gold medal and and you mentioned being away from your father was was that time spent away from him one of the things which helped you not have that in your mind with him was it always that you have to get the gold medal um with I think with him it was it was <laughs> you know um as parents, we believe in our children, right? And we believe they can do anything they set their minds to. And so he believed that. And he saw me as his son who, you know, who could do anything he set his mind to, and that included becoming the best in the world. And, you know, he saw me succeed many times um, as a youngster. And so as I grew up, and as the level of competition became more and more difficult, um, I think in his mind it was frustrating, you know, to see me do anything less than win. And, um, and you know, I remember, I mean, I remember telling him, you know, Dad, it's not that easy anymore. <laughs> um, I'm not skating against, you know, the other kids in, in the state of Wisconsin and not skating even against the other Americans, you know, now I'm competing against the best in the world. And that includes some, you know, some skaters that are bigger and stronger and, you know, more explosive than I am. So, um, um, we would go back and forth on that. And, and I, and I, you know, ultimately he was correct. Right. Um, uh, his son could be the best in the world, um, but it was uh, it was not an everyday thing, and I think um, um, it's hard to um, that's hard to marry a parent's perspective, especially you know one that he had never competed um, at a highly competitive level in sports, um, and so I think that maybe things were a little more black and white in his mind um, than um, than they were at least in mine. Someone who did go through an uh, elite level of sport was Eric Hyden, and he was your orthopedist on the team when you won gold, and and obviously he's he's won five golds at the the nineteen eighty games. What what role did he have in in your career? <laughs> well, it's funny you ask that question now, Richard, because speaking of black and white, what, you know the thing that always struck me about Eric when he would spend time around her team was was how black and white his world was. Oh, you know, really? <laughs> he's the guy that, yeah, you know, when you when you win every event and you just don't lose, um, <laughs> then, you know, things tend to be black and white. And so I always got the impression and the, the kind of aura from Eric that his thought press process was one of, you know, well, what's the, what's the problem? Just go do it, you know? <laughs> Like, why, why, you don't, you know, don't overanalyze this. Just get out there and do it and beat everybody. Um, so um, I don't want to say winning came easy to him because we all know how hard he trained. Um, but winning came easy to him compared to, how, <laughs> compared to how it comes for most of us. And so he was pretty black and white. Um, I think it was nice to have, I know it was nice to have Eric around. Um, but again, in terms of... Uh, in terms of, you know, what we learned from them. Well, he was the reason I started skating, you know, not just another American, but to see a guy from Madison, Wisconsin, go out and win five gold medals at the Lake Placid Olympics in 1980, when I had just laced up speed skates for the first time on a frozen lagoon or frozen pond in Madison three weeks prior, um, was, was at, the only thing and everything um, that it took to get me um, to believe that I could be an Olympic gold medalist in the sport of speed skating. So he was a huge, he was um, the catalyst for me to get into the sport. 
and the catalyst for me to believe that I could accomplish my dream for many, many years. And yet, ultimately, as I became, um, uh, you know, a man and, and, and one of the better skaters on the circuit, um, at that point, I think there was only so much I could learn from him because everybody handles that level differently. Mm. Who who were some of the people who you you did really learn from and 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 were were mentors to you? Well, uh, you know, I, I I picked up tidbits. So my first year on the U.S. national team was Bonnie Blair's last year, and um, and um, Bonnie prepared differently than I did and trained differently than I did as well. But one thing I learned from Bonnie was uh, the importance of lifestyle. And, you know, it's, it's about training hard, but it's also about what you do when you're not training. Right. Um, um, for those of us that are of, um, modest talent, we can't afford to, you know, go out, you know, drinking on our rest day or eating, you know, eating garbage. We need to eat well. We need to get the rest that we need to get. And, and we really need to be all in. And uh, I learned that from Bonnie. Um, Jeremy Witherspoon, a teammate of mine up in Canada, um, who is one of the most successful sprinters of all time, maybe the most, uh, he, um, he taught me how to, he helped teach me how to put things in perspective and that um, sport uh, should not be about material things and awards, but rather about the journey toward becoming the best that you can be and how close can we get to our ultimate potential and skating the perfect race for ourselves. Because ultimately, if we skate and perform at anything in life the best that we possibly can, how can we be disappointed regardless of outcome? We can't. It's just not fair or realistic. And so, you know, put the place aside, put the time on the clock aside even. Um, how did we perform? And if we performed well or we performed to the to the best of our potential, then it was a success. And ultimately, on the other hand, if we even if we win and we didn't skate that good of a race, we should not be satisfied. With that in mind, was the 2002 final where you won gold your best ever race? <laughs> well, we, we had to skate it twice in that Olympics. Um, mm. um, and so once in each lane. And uh, the first day was a good race. It was enough for Olympic record that, that actually still holds to this day, partially thanks to the venue in Salt Lake and the high altitude. Um, uh, the second race was um, not, it didn't go well. I was paired with Kip Carpenter, a fellow American who won the bronze, and uh, and Kip actually kicked uh, kicked his lane cone into my lane. My skate hit that, and I lost a lot of momentum and speed. So it could have gone better, Richard, if I'm being honest with you. Um, and I never did skate the perfect race. They say perfection is elusive, and I would certainly agree with that. Well, I, I think... A gold medal is is still a, a just reward for all of the hard work and everything that you've done, Casey. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you and learning from you on this podcast today. Before you go, Casey, can you let us know where we can continue to find you on social media and or online, and also if there's anything else you want to add on this program? Yeah, well, I appreciate that, Richard. It's been a pleasure on my end as well. Um, I'm a hermit when it comes to social media. So uh, LinkedIn is one option. And then um, I do have a website, which is caseyfits.com. Those are the two options. I live um, vicariously through my wife when it comes to all of the rest. <laughs> Fantastic. It's probably a good thing. Casey, thank you for being on the program and thank you for being the best in the world. Thanks, Richard. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Brilliant stuff there with Casey. And we've spoken to quite a few speed skaters on this podcast before. Maybe we go back and listen to my conversation with Chad Hedrick. 
I've also spoken to Jurit Bergsma, Jan Blockhuizen, and of course, only a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Stefan Grutois. They're all available at sportachino.com, at Apple Podcasts, at Stitcher, at Podbean, pretty much every single place that you can get podcasts, you'll be able to find the best in the world with Richard Parr. And what would be really good is if you click the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Plus, what would also really help me is if you could give us a rating and review. That would really help boost the knowledge of our show around the world. All right, that's it for this week. We're going to leave the Winter Olympics behind next week. We're going to another sport which doesn't need snow. I won't tell you exactly who it is. You'll just have to wait. Or you might get a little hint in the Best in the World Facebook group. Or you might get a little hint at our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash best in the world. But if you don't check them out, I guess you'll just have to listen to it next week. Until then, I'll speak to you soon. Goodbye. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.